When we meet Jesus in today's reading, we catch him sharing an intimate moment with his friends and disciples on his way to Jerusalem. They've gathered at the home of Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead just a few days earlier, and are enjoying dinner together. And while Lazarus's sister Martha serves, his other sister Mary performs one of the most iconic acts in the whole of the Bible. She takes a full pound of very costly perfume, slathers it on Jesus' feet to anoint them, and then she wipes them clean with her own hair. Judas objects loudly and complains that the perfume, which was worth about a year's wages for a day laborer, could have been sold and the proceeds distributed amongst the poor. And while John fills us in on his real motive, that he was a thief who liked to steal money from the common purse, he still makes a good point. But it's Jesus and not Judas that troubles us when he leaps to Mary's defense, saying, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. And what troubles us is we're kind of with Judas on this one. I mean, when we look at what Mary is doing for Jesus, we totally get the symbolism. This meal they're sharing takes place only six days before Passover, which means that in seven days, Jesus will be dead. And so in a way, when Mary anoints his feet, she is preparing his body for burial. But the cost... That's a lot of money for a jar of perfume. And despite our capitalist consumer upbringing, even we can't help but wonder if that money could have been better spent ministering to the poor. And then there's the intimacy of the gesture. In Jesus' day, women weren't allowed to touch a man unless they were a close relative. And letting your hair down was seen as a sensual act to be done in private or for your husband. And here's Mary, in full view of everyone, touching Jesus, a man she isn't married to, and wiping his feet with her loosed hair like it ain't no thing. No wonder Judas couldn't stomach this wanton display of wild, extravagant love that Mary was putting on and saw the whole thing as a particularly crass attempt to gain Jesus' favor. And despite ourselves, we kind of get where he's coming from. Not because we doubt the sincerity or see anything tawdry in Mary's actions, but because we've seen too often what comes from cleaving too closely to Jesus' rebuke. How you always have the poor with you has been used to justify our apathy and inaction. Because if even Jesus says there's nothing we can do about it, then, well, who are we to argue? or how it's been used to justify outrageous expenditures on behalf of the church, like private jets for clergy because they don't want to fly with sinners because they're doing it for Jesus, or how it's been used to defend the idea that the church has no role in the community beyond its four walls and should devote itself entirely to spiritual things rather than keep wasting its time trying to be an agent for change in the world. And you know what? Judas has a point. 
We should cringe at these lame excuses for preserving the status quo. We should rage whenever someone says that they're doing it for Jesus when it's clear from the get-go that they're doing it for themselves. And we should push back hard against the idea that God has preordained poverty so that the rest of us have someone to show charity to because that's not what the gospel's about at all. While he makes a good point, I think we should always be wary of siding too closely with Judas and his extremely cynical worldview. But let's shift gears for a minute and take a look at our own world for a second. Are things today just as bad? Well, to quote the Cairo Senator for Religion, Rights, and Social Justice, we are experiencing unprecedented poverty in the midst of plenty. Unnecessary abandonment in spite of unheard abundance. And a quick skim through the statistics would seem to bear this out. The top 1% of Canadians own 25.6% of the wealth in this country. The top 5% own 43% of it. And the top 20% own 73.5% of it. While the bottom 40% have just 1.1%. And this means that 4.9 million people in Canada which is about one in seven, live in poverty. That 1.65 million children, that's one in five, live in poverty. And that nearly two million seniors scrape by on the $17,000 provided by the guaranteed income supplement, even though the minimum cost of living in Canada is estimated to be about 18,000. And if you wanna watch these numbers get really scary, Start factoring in things like race, or gender, or mental and physical health, and the percentage living in poverty skyrockets. So what does that mean? It means that in Canada, a wealthy, prosperous Western nation that prides itself on its social awareness and infrastructure, nearly one in two people would be considered low-income or impoverished. And why? Well, it's, it's partially systemic, as a lot of the laws in this country and many others were written to favor the wealthy, to make it easier for them to do business and become even wealthier. But it's also indicative of our values, because what do we value most here in this country? Justice, freedom, democracy, nope, it's money. And if you don't think that's true, I invite you to stop and think about it because it's not going to take you long to realize that pretty much every aspect of our lives from our education, to our health care, to the way our businesses work, has been carefully crafted to either decrease costs or increase revenue in some way. Seriously, try it. It's scary how often that's true. Well, the church isn't immune, because while we may be charitable by nature, we can pinch a penny with the best of them when it comes to funding our ministries. 
We have a tendency to measure our successes in dollars and cents, and can be pretty blasé when it comes to actually ending poverty because we know the small amount of time and money we can invest is really just a drop in an ocean of iniquity. And so we conclude, like Jesus, that the poor will always be with us. Shrug our shoulders as if to say, we're doing the best we can, and then turn our attention back to more spiritual things like obsessing over the amount in the offering plate or counting the cost of our Sunday school supplies, which is pretty much the way it was in Jesus' day. Do you want to know what the Romans promised the people of Palestine when they came? Peace and prosperity. Do you know how they did it? by instituting systems that polarized the region's wealth, concentrating most of it in the hands of the wealthy, while everyone else saw their net worth slowly spiral south of the poverty line. Which, to quote Lindsay S. Jodry on the topic, should sound familiar as it's pretty much how our global economy still works. Which is probably why we despair of ever changing these systems, because since the ziggurats of Ur, this is how we've done business. And so, like Jesus says, the poor have always been with us, and from the look of things, are always going to be. So maybe Jesus, Judas is right, and we should rage a little at the wastefulness of Mary and the calm acceptance of Christ when it comes to the status quo. Maybe we ought to look again at what Jesus is saying, because Jesus' words don't always mean what we think they mean. Now, this could be a bit of a challenge for us, as Jesus didn't speak English. He spoke Aramaic. And Aramaic has a lot of words that don't translate well into English. So that makes a word-for-word -word translation from Aramaic to English pretty challenging. But what makes it even more challenging is that the vast majority of Jesus' followers didn't speak Aramaic. They spoke Greek. So when Paul sent his letters and the Gospels were being written, they weren't written in Aramaic. They were written in Greek, which, you guessed it, doesn't translate smoothly into English either. So when we read our Bibles, what we're reading is an English translation of a Greek text that was translated from Aramaic. Needless to say, mistakes happen as a lot of guesswork went into these translations, as in many cases, we were trying to convey Greek or Jewish concepts that don't exist in our language or culture. Which is why when you read two different editions of the Bible, the words don't always match up, even if the content remains largely the same. But when we're trying to figure out what Jesus meant by something, the exact wording does matter. And these educated guesses can sometimes lead us astray. And this passage may be one of them. The phrase John uses, you always have the poor with you, can be translated from Greek in two different ways. The most common way is what we heard this morning, you will always have the poor with you. But more recent analysis suggests that might not be so. And an alternate translation may be closer to what Jesus meant. Instead of saying, 
you always have the poor with you. Jesus could be saying, keep the poor among you always, which for us has a radically different meaning and lines up a lot better with the life and teachings of a man who spent so much of his time amongst the poor and outcasts doing whatever he could to ease their suffering and bring them hope. But what makes this alternate translation even more likely is that when you read it, keep the poor among you always, it becomes a reference to the idea of jubilee. Now, you may not be familiar with this term as it's kind of buried in the bowels of Deuteronomy, but Jubilee was one of the many commandments God laid down for the people of Israel. And the idea was this. Every seven years, the people of Israel were to forgive all debts, all of them. So if you owed someone money, not anymore. If you'd sold a family heirloom to feed your kids, they had to give it back to you. And if you were a slave, you had to be freed. And not only freed, you were to send them on their way with enough staples and supplies to start their own household. And no being cagey about what year it was either, because God explicitly instructs lenders to be as generous in the sixth year as they would be in the first even if that did mean you only owed that person for a year. Pretty extravagant, huh? But it gets better. Every 50th year is the year of Jubilee. And in a Jubilee year, not only were all debts forgiven, but any land sold to secure debts was to be returned to the original owner. That's some pretty wild love that God's demanding. And why? Well, in Deuteronomy 15.11, God spells it out for us. There will never cease to be some in need on earth. I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. And as God gave us everything in the first place, that's a pretty reasonable request. But you see how what God is saying here lines up with what Jesus is saying? Lines up with keep the poor among you always, but you will not always have me. Jesus isn't suggesting that spiritual things like him should come before practical things like caring for the poor. He's praising the staggering love and generosity that Mary is showing him that it's her wild, extravagant love that we should be emulating because that's the kind of wild, extravagant love that God has for us. And they demand we emulate through the idea of Jubilee. And wouldn't that change the world if we valued each other more than profit and loss? But that's the challenge now, isn't it? And in some ways, we're already doing it. You know, whenever we make casseroles or collect canned goods or supply scarves and toques and mittens to anyone who needs them, that is a step in the right direction. 
Whenever we challenge our lawmakers through petitions and protests to make changes to laws and regulations that are unjust and inequitable, we are embracing Mary's wild and extravagant love. And whenever we vote in favor of a living minimum wage or a guaranteed living income or affordable housing or student loan forgiveness or even just shouted for joy when our government declared it was moving forward with socialized dental and pharmacare, we are expressing an element of God's promised jubilee. But maybe we need to go further. Maybe post-secondary education in this country should be free. Maybe there should be a limit on how long a debt can be owed. Maybe Canada should consider forgiving the debts of every developing nation so that their countries and economies could blossom and encourage other nations to do the same. And maybe if we're feeling really wild and crazy, we can let go of our own financial anxiety and channel our time and energy and resources into ministries that matter both within and outside the four walls of our church. But no matter what we choose to do or where the Spirit leads us next, we have got to hold on to Mary's example, to the wild, extravagant love that God asks of us all. Now, can you say amen to that?